1: Plushcare.com/weightloss.
2: So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a 100 episodes and counting. And our plan, well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say "we," I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a and supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains significant discussion of suicide, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. Here's what the Canadian forces don't want you to know about Stuart Langridge. First, that he was a good soldier.
0: He was scored in what they call the top third. He was high scoring in all of the ratings. And the officer, he was even recommending that Stuart be promoted ahead of his peers.
2: That's Sean Fines, Stuart's father. And Stuart loved what he did. Sheila Fines, Stuart's mom, remembers visiting him on base in Edmonton. He took her to see the tanks that he'd been training on. He even got her to climb in, but she was feeling claustrophobic, so she jumped out before he could close the hatch.
3: And it was like, oh my goodness, you're enjoying this? And he went, Mom, he said, it's great. He said, it's great. I was happy for him that he felt he'd made the right choices.
2: The Army doesn't want you to know that when Stuart Langridge came back from Afghanistan, he was suffering from PTSD. Sheila first noticed that something was off when she visited his home in Edmonton.
3: There was just an edge to him that we had never seen before. He didn't like to talk
2: about it much but he did occasionally mention a few things that he couldn't get out of his head mostly the children
0: he was very disturbed by the poverty over there and he felt terrible for the kids
3: he felt terrible for the little kids over there like he comes from a very ordinary not that well off a life we're just an ordinary family busy family but he had everything he needed and he went over there and he saw Like I had told him, the rest of the world doesn't live like we do. You need to go and find out for yourself. And he did. And it changed him. He would complain about nightmares and he wasn't sleeping very well and he was having a really hard time.
0: They skirted around that Stuart was sick and they tried to blame it on everything and anything else except PTSD.
2: In the course of a year, Stuart would attempt suicide five different times. And the military doesn't want you to know that when Stuart finally did succeed in killing himself in an army barracks, he was supposed to be on suicide watch.
0: That's what we were told, he was under suicide watch. But then, after Stuart died, all of a sudden, there's no such thing as a suicide watch in the army.
3: I remember sitting there thinking, what are we doing here? Like, how did this come to be, you know, our our proud soldier? You know, I remember when he came back from Bosnia, and then they did... um, They did Remembrance Day in Fort Saskatchewan and we didn't tell him we were coming. And we showed up just before the parade started and he he saw us and he just came running over didn't he? And he was so proud and he wanted to introduce us to every officer that he possibly could. And how did we get from that to this? You know, he was yours, he was your soldier, he was your young man. we trusted that if he needed it, if he got sick or whatever, you would look after that. We gave him to you in a way, and and they didn't.
2: But what the military doesn't want you to know most of all is the extraordinary lengths they were willing to go to defend their reputation. The Canadian forces were about to go to war against the family of a dead soldier. During the deadly years in Kandahar, the Canadian government and military deceived themselves and the public about how well the war was going. But as more and more flag-draped coffins were flown home, it became harder to obscure reality. And yet anyone who spoke up was accused of betraying the troops. Soon, it was soldiers themselves and their families who were speaking up about the war and about how they were treated when they got back. But even they, the soldiers who risked their lives, could find themselves in the military's crosshairs. And one family was about to find out that the Canadian forces would do nearly anything to stop the truth from coming out. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons.
0: I never wanted to become a gunner in
2: a tank. It's uh, just something they put me into. I think tanks are big and smelly and loud, but uh, I'm enjoying this a lot more than I'd ever imagined. That's Stuart Langridge from a 2003 TV show about an intermilitary tank competition. Stuart had an interest in the military from an early age. I remember
0: when Stuart was about eight or nine years old, Sheila had taken the boys down to the PE.
2: The PE is the Pacific National Exhibition in Vancouver.
0: And he came home that night just so excited. He had a Polaroid photograph taken of him wearing an army helmet inside an armoured vehicle. And he was just exuberant. And from that moment on, I think I knew what he, what he was going to do with his life. That just fascinated him. It was army all the way. It was the only thing he ever really wanted to do.
3: So it's all he ever talked about. It's literally all he did.
2: He joined the reserves as a teenager and eventually fought to be enlisted full time. His first deployment was to Bosnia in 2002, and Stuart appeared to be excelling. But then, in 2004, he was sent to Kabul.
0: We were actually very proud because while Stuart was there, he went in August of 2004 and came back, I think it was February of oh five. but uh, the first elections were held while he was there, and they were part of the security for those.
3: He wasn't one of the guys who got to stay inside the wire and do desk jobs and all of that. He was part of the guys that were up in the mountains doing recce work and guiding in troops to bomb places and stuff like that. He worked hard when he was there. His
2: experiences in Afghanistan clearly left their mark on Stuart. He quickly began to fall apart. It started with chest pain.
0: I wasn't aware at that time that chest pain was sort of a classic symptom of PTSD. I knew about PTSD, but I wasn't that dialed into it either. But as it progressed in a couple of months later, Stuart attempted suicide. And, and that's when it uh, rocked our world and like, what's going on here?
2: He began to drink heavily and use marijuana and cocaine to self-medicate. Over the next year, Stuart had a number of short stints in hospitals, psych wards and rehab, and he attempted suicide another four times. Sheila and Sean tried to do everything they could to help him. After his fifth attempt, Sheila remembers visiting him in the hospital.
3: The doctor told me, that they wouldn't keep him they wouldn't see about giving him anything further it was day 2 and he was going to be discharged at that point stuart said he wanted to be referred to the, like a longer term place and i said he's willing to be committed <laughs> like that's a big thing right
2: but the hospital insisted that he be discharged so sheila drove him back to the military base and took him straight to the hospital unit there She was told that Stuart, along with the chaplain and the Army's medical staff, were going to make a plan to help him get
3: better. So I told Stuart I was going home. We stood in the parking lot. I cried. He cried. They told me that they would make sure that he wouldn't be alone because by now he's had five suicide attempts.
2: The next day, Stuart called his mom from the parking lot of the Alberta Psychiatric Institute where he was planning on checking himself in.
3: And when it came time, for his discharge from there. He got in touch with the military about a week before and said that he was ready. He would like to go to a rehab facility. He wanted to get back to being a good soldier. And they said that they would think about it, they would discuss it and get back to him. So it got to be the day before. And uh, they said, no, you're going back to base. The the doctor said they want you back. Instead of providing him treatment, The Canadian forces
2: ordered him back to base.
0: We found out after Stuart died that they had made the decision that Stuart would not be allowed further treatment because it would cost $50,000.
3: He had to sit in this little room behind the duty desk, you know, where people come in and out of the building, and they would hold on to his meds and administer them. And everybody in the building, everybody knew that Stu was there.
2: He was put in the defaulter's room a place where soldiers who were being disciplined had to stay.
3: It was the most humiliating thing they could have done to him. In that week that he was there, he told them that he didn't feel well. They sent him back to the hospital again for an overnight. When he came back, and then two days later, he phoned me on my birthday on the 14th. He said that he had asked his commanding officer if he could please be sent back east to Homewood. They said they would think about it. said so they'd let him know on Monday. This was on Friday. He phoned me on Friday. He told me that he had asked to go again. And the next day, he killed himself. The Army has this rule, right, that they never do notifications on the phone. Except they did. We came home. There was a d on the phone and a number, and a message to call them. And I knew, I I knew. And Sean called them and they said.
0: Well, it was the colonel. He said, something along the lines, we may have heard something already. And I said, no, but um, when I'm calling the colonel, I don't think this is good news. And he told me that sure had been found.
3: It it was two-minute phone call. Uh It was horrible.
2: Over the next few years, Sheila and Sean would work tirelessly to uncover the system in place that had failed their son. And we kind of became the military's worst nightmare. David Puglase, the Ottawa Citizen's defense reporter, remembers when Sheila first contacted him. In his work, David has often spoken to the grieving families of soldiers. But this was different.
4: I walk into her apartment, she leads me into her uh, room, and. There is a wall of documents that she has collected over the years, and I start reading these documents, and it is unbelievable what they were doing to this woman. I remember getting a call from a, a public affairs officer saying, well, she's a liar, her son uh, you know, and her didn't have a good relationship. You know, you're putting your career on the line if you, if you write a story about her. And I said, oh, that's interesting, because I saw the suicide note that her son addressed to her. So if her son didn't like her, why would he address a very heartfelt note to her? So how is it that she's a liar? It was a smear campaign right from the get-go against this woman.
2: And David says that this wasn't just some bureaucratic callousness. There was a logical reason. For the military to attack Sheila Fines.
4: It was at kind of the midpoint of the war where the Defense Department of Canadian Forces had this narrative, we're taking care of our injured military personnel. And she was she was going against that and hurting their narrative. So that's why the pushback was so bad.
2: And before we return to Sheila and Sean's story, I think we need to spend some time on this point. The military and the government often used Canadian soldiers and veterans as a shield to deflect from criticism about the war effort.
4: So you start asking questions, and it's kind of you're against the brave men and women of the Canadian forces.
2: And their attacks against Sheila and Sean were just an extreme example of how a lot of military critics were treated. Take Stephen Staples. During the war years, Staples worked at the Rideau Institute, a progressive think tank, and he was one of only a handful of anti-war voices who would speak out publicly.
5: As far as all the pundits that you would see on television, more military spending, go into Afghanistan, go into Iraq. We had no choice. There is no alternative. Build a continental security grid, join missile defense. And we needed desperately to provide Canadians with some other evidence-based uh, alternatives to these so-called solutions that we were being offered and that politicians seem to be buying hook, line, and sinker.
2: One day, he was giving a presentation in Halifax called The Americanization of the Canadian Military.
5: And we were talking about these trends of how the Canadian forces were being transformed by Hillier and others to be a, a combat fighting force in the vein of the United States and how we were abandoning our traditional peacekeeping role and middle power role. Well, at the end of the event, we were cleaning up, tidying up the crowded left, and someone found it, literally, a piece of paper sitting on a chair that was an email that had been printed off to a high-ranking uh, member of the military who was in the audience with my itinerary on it and a number of events where I was speaking. And it came from headquarters in Moncton and it had been sent to Somebody in Nova Scotia to keep track of me, they were keeping
2: tabs on us. And here's David Puglasey again. I put in an access
4: to information request, and there's this whole report, I think it was 1,500 words, all about Staples, what he said, and oh, you know, about his personality and that type of thing. The military went to the Globe and Mail and said, well, it's not a report, it was an email. It's like, well, it's 1,500 words, so you call it a report, whatever you want. And so that was their comeback. And, you know, a lot of effort to either monitor or counter opposing voices, which in some respects, well, in many respects, is disturbing.
2: Amir Adaran, the lawyer whose work helped uncover the Afghan detainee scandal, says that along with attacking critics, the military used money to help increase support for the war, Along with his legal career, Amir also works in public health, and he often has to apply for federal research grants, which are quite competitive. Well,
1: the security and military scholars in the country sure had it easier than the health scholars, because they could apply not to the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, even though they are social scientists and humanities people, you know, like political scientists, historians, that kind of thing. They could do an end run around that and just apply to DND straight to the military for money. And the military was very generous. I mean, you know, these, these grants that the military handed out were bigger than any shirt grants I had seen. Places like York university, Wilfrid Laurier, university of Manitoba, UBC, Carleton university. They each got well over a half million dollars. What for quote unquote, military research. Now, this gives rise to a problem. If you're a scholar at York or Manitoba or UBC or McGill or Carleton, one of these places getting that kind of money, are you going to criticize the military that's funding you? Of course not. So, what this was being used for really was to buy agreement. And if you looked at the work of these scholars who were funded by the military, miraculously, they wrote all sorts of things favoring the war in Afghanistan. And they were chosen in a process that wasn't Competitive in the same way as what every other scholar in the country has to go through. This is Banana Republic stuff. This is our military buying the consent of university professors to cheerlead for the military.
2: While the conservative government and the Canadian forces had many tools with which to brush aside criticism, there was one group whose critiques were impossible to ignore: soldiers and veterans. As thousands of soldiers returned home from deployments in Kabul and Kandahar, many felt that the government was betraying them. Bruce Monker, fought in Operation Medusa and was severely injured in a friendly fire incident. You heard from him in our episode about the battle he eventually had to have 5% of his brain
6: removed. I lost the ability to read, write, walk, talk. I was, you know, down and out pretty hard.
2: For the next year, he had to relearn the most basic of skills. During that time, he was still employed by the military, and Bruce initially had faith that the armed forces would take care of him, that they would recognize the enormous sacrifice he had made for his country. But then, he learned about the meat chart.
6: So the meat chart is, is you get injured, they give you a certain amount of money for, you know, an arm, a leg, things like that. I think an arm at the time was 125000 or something like that.
2: This was all part of a set of reforms attributable to both the Liberals and Conservatives that replaced a lifetime pension for injured soldiers with lump sum
6: payments. I had a penetrating head injury, and so the maximum you could get initially was 250,000. And I got a check in the mail with no explanation, nothing, basically saying 22,000. Here's 22,000. Had I signed that check and cashed it, that would have been seen as accepting the decision. So I would have been screwed from that point on. To me, that seems underhanded. To me, that seems like an insurance company way. This isn't the government. I just went and fought for you, did what was asked for you, got grievously injured, and now you're trying to basically pull some nefariousness. So I always had this thought that I would be taken care of. And so when I didn't get taken care of, it was a betrayal. It was really betrayal. And it just angered me.
2: But he still wanted to be a soldier. He applied to get training to be an intelligence officer, but he was rejected. Eventually, the decision was reversed by someone higher up the chain of command, but when Bruce began his training, he feels that he was targeted.
6: I think somebody did not like being told what to do and wanted to make my life as miserable as possible. They tried to embarrass me by making me go to like, how to put on your uniform, classes, and how to tie your boots. And I've been in 10 years and then made me go and do courses that I was qualified to teach on and made me be a candidate on it. So they were doing things to kind of mess with me. And at this point I was like, you know what? I've given so much. I've given 10 years of my life to this. I almost died for this. And I I, I just said, you know what? Fuck you, I'm done. And I, and I, I quit and I left the military.
2: Bruce distanced himself from anything to do with the Canadian forces and went to university. And years later, in 2013, he was still fighting the insulting $22,000 payment that the military tried to offer him.
6: I was still kind of given the Conservatives' benefit of the doubt at that point. But at the same time, the Conservatives were closing Veterans Affairs offices, including my local Veterans Affairs office.
2: At that time, Bruce was living in Windsor, Ontario, And even though he needed to speak to his case manager regularly, he was now being told to go drive to London, an hour and a half away. It was part of a broad plan by the Harper government and its Veterans Affairs Minister, Julian Fantino, to close VA offices across Canada. Many veterans had also had their benefits clawed back by the government, which outraged them further. All of this culminated in an infamous meeting between Julian Fantino and a group of veterans where the ex-cop hectored elderly veterans about their demeanor. Bruce was
6: there. He comes in and he gets into, of all the people, he gets into a yelling match with uh, with the 88-year-old World War II veteran. <laughs> I like, think of all the guys to get in the, you know, I think that would be like the worst guy to pick and get into a shouting match with. And that was basically the demise of Julian Fantino.
2: Fantino was quietly shuffled out of the cabinet not long after. But the appalling treatment of veterans wasn't limited to Julian Fantino. It was institutional. And the people who often suffered the worst were soldiers who came back from Afghanistan with PTSD. Sean Teal was one of them. He served four tours in Afghanistan. And like Bruce, Sean also fought in Operation Medusa. You'll recall that he was caught in the middle of a fierce firefight, but refused to leave without two of his colleagues helping to save their lives. He was awarded the military's second highest honor, but because of the bloodshed he witnessed, he came back a different person.
7: Somebody's literally scared for their life, or they just listen to their friend die basically over the radio. They,
2: they change as the person. Even though Sean rescued a number of people during the battle in Panjwai, he often felt extreme guilt. he returned to canada
7: i didn't want to be one of the only people going up and being congratulated for anything because there were so many other people that were out there that never got any recognition and i felt like it was wrong to be to be given any sort of uh adulation or awards for doing what i had to do i didn't do anything to try to get a medal it just happened
2: and it wasn't long before his mental state began to deteriorate
7: I knew there was something wrong with me, because I I wasn't sleeping well. I got really angry really easy, and and I was going through a really bad relationship. I was afraid of admitting that I was having mental issues, headaches and pains, and you just just grunt through it. As we say in the the infantry, drink it off, because that's what they do. They go home, they take a handful of Motrin, have a couple of beer, and then you reset and you go back tomorrow, and you break yourself all over again.
2: But Sean says that especially for soldiers in the infantry, it's hard to ask for help. Because if you do, you're risking your job in the army. Most guys were afraid to
7: go into therapy because once you do it, it's like ending your career. You know, not everybody's career ends, but a lot of us, it did.
2: So after the horrors that he witnessed during Operation Medusa, Sean did the only thing that made sense to him at the time.
7: I dealt with it in the only way that I knew to deal with it, and and it went back to the place where I actually felt happiest, which was in Afghanistan.
2: That didn't fix his problems.
7: I started getting sick, and that was kind of the last straw for me, because if you're going to work and it's just a regular day and you're throwing up out your car window, or, or you have to pull over on the side of the 401 and use the bathroom in the bushes because you physically can, you do it four or five times on the way to work, these aren't problems that you can push off anymore. It got really, really bad for me.
2: Even when he did reach out for help, the medications he was given sapped him of his will to live. Instead of treating his PTSD, Sean says they only focused on his physical pain.
7: When you're talking about PTSD, and those are the scariest four letters for anybody in the system because those letters don't look good anywhere. The best thing for me to do was to deal with a lot of this in silence. I turned a lot of problems inward and I drank.
2: Today, Sean is doing therapy, and with the support of his wife, who's also an Afghan vet, He's trying to live his life as best as he can.
7: I left high school, and not even a year later, I was in Afghanistan. Really, so I went from doing homework to doing patrols in Police District Five and places like that in Kabul. And then before, after a long couple of years of that combat,
2: but like Bruce, he feels that veterans were let down by the government and by the military.
7: What ended up happening to me there is I stopped trusting the healthcare system, and that's that was my only friend at that point. I really believe that people were trying to help me and then I realized they kept pointing back to the military saying, why aren't people dealing with this? Why isn't the military dealing with this? This is not a civilian problem. Veterans should have a healthcare facility somewhere, at least in some major cities, where when you're dealing with people who have 24 hour a day problems, these doors should be open for them. I still go to therapy now, I've got hundreds of appointments and I feel by at least telling you some of these things you know that some some of these people that didn't say anything for the past 15 years maybe they'll hear something and realize you know what maybe i can go in and offload some baggage
2: the military's poor record with ptsd and its propensity to try to shape the narrative and attack critics is best exemplified by what happened to stuart langridge and his parents as you heard earlier in the show stuart wasn't provided with proper treatment even when it was evident that he had PTSD. An army doctor had assessed Stewart six months before he died and found that he likely had PTSD, but the military never followed up. And when he was in hospital after a suicide attempt, a PhD candidate did a workup on him and also concluded that he had PTSD.
0: But we were told later that because she wasn't a psychiatrist, she didn't have the authority to do a diagnosis. So, there was clear evidence of what was going on with Stuart. It wasn't just that he, was, like, he was drinking heavily. We were told at night he was having night terrors and the whole bed was soaked in sweat and stuff. One time the, the guys were over at our barbecue and they started talking about Afghanistan. Stuart left the room and was found down in the basement crying. And this was the era of suck it up, buttercup, and we don't get PTSD. Yeah,
3: they, they said that to us. They actually said that.
0: They really go to great lengths to suggest that Stuart did not have PTSD.
2: And instead of providing him with what could have been life-saving treatment, they forced Stuart back to base.
0: They told him he was going to earn further treatment, but he had to behave himself.
2: When Sheila got the call that Stuart had ended his own life, she wasn't surprised.
3: The first words out of my mouth when they notified us was, I told them this would happen. It was the first thing I said to them.
2: And even after his death, the Canadian forces continued to fail Stuart and his family. The way they acted suggests either massive incompetence, an active cover-up, or both. Despite the fact that Stewart had written up paperwork designating Sean as the executor of his estate and Sheila as his next of kin, the military deemed that Stewart's ex-girlfriend be the decision-maker. Later, the military would claim that the paperwork had been lost behind a filing cabinet. But this meant that the family had no say in the funeral.
3: We went to a viewing, and we were told that we could have 30 minutes for the viewing, because after that, someone else would want the rest of the time. So at first we went, no, no, that's not right. We don't tell us if we can only have 30 minutes, and it would be between this hour and this hour, right? And we were like, why? But then we decided, and this was our mistake, you know what, let's not cause a fuss, let's just get along. We went to the church, we sat in the front row, until all of a sudden we were asked to move along so that somebody else could sit there. And part of our family had to move to another row. Someone else was presented with the flag off his coffin.
2: And then there was Stuart's suicide note.
3: We asked if Stuart had left a note, and they said no.
2: Sheila and Sean were led to believe that their son had nothing to say to them before his suicide. But Stuart had left a note addressed to his family. The military police had it in their possession. But Sheila and Sean only received it more than a year later.
3: The note was, I'm very sorry, but I needed to stop the pain. And then he referenced grandma and auntie and his brothers and and Tommy. He apologized for taking his own life.
2: Right away, Sheila and Sean were determined to find out what had happened to their son. How had he slipped through the cracks when it was so obvious he needed help? The military police investigated his death, and according to later probes, they bungled it.
0: There were three findings in the police report. One was that Stuart's death was suicide. That was never in contention. That was never an issue. One was that Stuart had made himself sick. So I immediately took umbrage to that and said, you're chronologically reversed on that. But more importantly, an investigator in the military police is not qualified to offer medical opinion. And the last one was that the regiment had gone to great lengths to support Stuart. In my mind, they were punishing him without the benefit of any formal discipline, but they were just subjecting him to that.
3: We had many meetings with the military police out here at the base. They flew out to meet with us and to try and answer our questions. Looking back on those meetings, they were trying to play us, for sure.
2: Normally in cases like this, the military would hold a board of inquiry to investigate the death. And they didn't want to do it. For months and months, Sheila and Sean pushed for one. But the delays continued to mount they finally heard from the military at the last possible minute.
3: In the end, what happened was I was walking down the street, I was out shopping, and I get this phone call from the assisting officer saying, oh, guess what? Board of Inquiry is going to start tomorrow in Edmonton at nine o'clock in the morning, whatever the time was. Sheila and Sean live on Vancouver Island. And I said, great, we'll see you there. John came home from work, and we got on a plane to Edmonton, and we did.
0: In terms of the Board of Inquiry, we started out with a really positive attitude toward that. We thought, oh, this is good. We're going to find some answers as to where the system has failed.
2: But it turned out to be a farce.
0: Amazingly, they found that, no, yeah, Stuart made himself sick. Uh, It was abandonment issues from his childhood. It was... you know, he was never that successful as a soldier. This had an impact on his entire adult life. They also suggested that he couldn't have acquired PTSD in Afghanistan. Like
2: I say, it was a real hatchet job. According to Sheila and Sean, the Board of Inquiry did everything it could to disparage Stuart. Military doctors denied that he had PTSD, blaming his suicide on substance abuse, even though it was obvious that his substance abuse was a result of PTSD. Military personnel blamed Stewart's death on the fact that he had attended a funeral for a fellow soldier who had committed suicide. The only problem was, Stewart hadn't been allowed to attend that funeral. Crucial witnesses, like the doctor who had assessed that Stewart likely had PTSD, weren't brought in to testify.
0: The other thing was, that Stewart's uh, immediate supervisor. They didn't call him to testify because supposedly he had PTSD.
3: From Afghanistan. Uh, There you go. It would later
2: emerge that the chain of command had interfered with the investigation.
0: The investigator's report had been edited by his supervisors and they took out references to negligence and told him to stop investigating for negligence. Uh, And they left that report altered but filed under his his name. So there was a concerted effort to present a narrative that played well for the regiment and for the military and didn't adhere too closely to what had actually happened, in my opinion. It was a huge disappointment. Like it was beyond a disappointment.
2: And so many of the urgent questions that Sheila and Sean had were never addressed. Like why was Stewart forced back onto the base when he clearly required treatment? And why was he left unsupervised when he had attempted suicide five times in the previous year? The Board of Inquiry provided no insight into any of this.
0: And that was a, a whitewash. I no other word for it. it, was a complete and utter whitewash to exonerate the chain of command and the medical community.
2: Sheila and Sean continued to fight for answers. They filed freedom of information requests, contacted journalists, and spoke out publicly. Here's David Puglazi again, who first broke this story after the board of inquiry had concluded.
4: She wouldn't go away. She was in the media. She flew to Ottawa and held a press conference on Parliament Hill. She was right in their face.
3: I think they were kind of surprised. And I just laid it all out. And that just kind of, all of Ottawa was like, oh my God, who is this woman? And that kind of started a lot of things happening.
2: After she put herself in the public spotlight, the military began to go after Sheila. David Puglase called it the most vindictive smear campaign he'd seen in the quarter century that he'd covered the Canadian military. Military officers would call him and claim privately that Stewart had been a terrible soldier, that because he had an autistic brother, his suicide could be blamed on genetics. They were adamant that Sheila and Sean were bad parents and that Stewart wanted to have nothing to do with them. And they said that the only reason Sheila and Sean were speaking out was for money. To be clear, there's absolutely no evidence for any of these claims. Sean and Sheila refused to back down.
3: I think at first we were just so disappointed. We were so disappointed that this institution who we placed so much faith in had let Stuart down and then let us down. You know, I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, the fines as you know, yada, yada, yada. But you come after my special needs son do you really think I'm going to sit there and say that's okay? Of course not. Would anybody? You know, to say that Stuart didn't care about us? How, how dare you?
2: And eventually, they were able to get the Military Police Complaints Commission to examine the way Stuart's death had been handled.
3: Sheila made sure her presence was felt during the proceedings. I remember the first day I went in there, these rows of chairs set up and... I picked a chair so that I would have a direct sight line to the witness. I wanted to look at them, and I wanted them to be able to see me. And every morning I would get dressed up in a business suit and heels, and I would go down and I would sit in my chair. And I remember going in the second or third day, and some military officer had taken my seat. And I thought, no, that's my seat. Mm. <laughs> the You know, small victories, right? So I just looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, but you're sitting in my chair. And he was so surprised that some wee woman from Victoria, him being an officer, would basically say, move because I'm sitting there. And he did. He, he just kind of moved, right? And I got a piece of paper and I said, "This seat reserved for Mrs. Fines," And I stuck it on that chair and nobody ever sat in that chair again. The hearings
2: were a massive news story.
3: I remember every morning I'd get up in the hotel and I'd go down to breakfast and I'd get a copy, of the Ottawa Citizen, and it was front page news every single day for however long I was there.
0: We truly had absolutely no idea what that was going to lead to or what that was going to become.
3: We took on the military and that was never actually our intent. I just wanted them to be honest and tell us what happened.
2: Finally, after months of hearings and over 90 witnesses, the Military Police Complaints Commission released their findings. It was a complete vindication of everything Sheila and Sean had been saying for years.
6: Today, nearly seven years to the day after Langridge hanged himself at CFB
2: Edmonton, Canada's Military Complaints Commissioner released a scathing report into events surrounding his death.
6: There were unacceptable errors. These reflected a lack of professionalism and or a lack of competence.
2: The report says investigators never attempted to do the very thing they promised to do, namely to uncover the truth of what happened to Corporal Langridge. Sheila spoke to the press after the report was released.
3: The military have caused us to suffer a cruel emotional, physical and financial toll. When a soldier dies a non-combat death in Canada, the family deserves to know the truth.
2: Sheila and Sean are still devastated by Stewart's death and the way that his name was dragged through the mud.
0: And it was a huge hurt and a disillusionment. And then there was a real strong sense of there are people wearing uniforms with things on their shoulders who don't deserve to ever be in the military. And There'd never be half the people that Stuart was, and Stuart deserved so much better from an institution that he loved.
2: But they're proud that they fought for Stuart, and that they helped create more of a conversation around PTSD in the military. But they still think that there isn't enough recognition of the soldiers who took their own lives during and after the war in Afghanistan.
3: The soldiers who come back and eventually take their own lives, they have a long, slow death. A long, slow death over weeks, months, maybe even years.
0: Canada has lost more soldiers or more members of the military at
2: home since they came home from Afghanistan than they lost over there. And they're not honoured in any way, particularly. Sheila and Sean say that whenever they hear the official count of Afghan war dead, a hundred and fifty-eight, they know that number is wrong. Because it doesn't include their son. Over the last 10 years, 191 active and former Canadian military personnel have committed suicide, more than the total who died in Afghanistan.
3: But they're nothing. They're not worthy of a mention.
2: That original number, 158, includes six members of the Canadian forces who took their own lives while in Afghanistan. But those who committed suicide on Canadian soil aren't counted or honoured in the same way. And that's so much of what this fight has been about for Sean and Sheila. They want to make it clear, Stuart fought for his country, and ultimately, he died for it.
3: One of our fights that we had was, we wanted the sacrifice medal for Stuart. We needed them to make the determination that he died as a result of his service.
2: None of this will bring Stuart back, but Sheila hopes that Stuart's story and their family's battle against the Canadian military has done some good.
3: I would like Stuart to be remembered as the good soldier he was. That's the most important thing for me. I would like all of these families, all of these men and women who have taken their own life as a result of their service, I would like that recognized in some tangible way. What I need is for the powers that be to do a proper recognition that They all count, not just Stuart, not just the registered phone, all of them. And to me, then I would be able to rest and say, I've accomplished my mission. Like Stuart, we managed to get the job done for you and everybody else.
2: Hundreds of Canadian soldiers died because of the Afghan war, either in Afghanistan or at home. And at the time, the government and military said that that sacrifice was justified because we were doing good and we were winning the war.
4: The messaging 100% was we are winning. There was certainly a public relations campaign by the military and the government to push that narrative.
2: But maybe one of the most important questions to ask is what exactly did they die for? Today, Afghanistan is a country once again ruled by the Taliban. A country that millions of people are trying to flee. A country where the ones who stayed behind are at risk of starvation. So was this war, Canada's longest, worth it? That's next time on Commons. (laughs) That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can now support all of Canada Land's political podcasts, including Commons, Wag the Dog, and The Backbench, for only $2.99 a month. And leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by David Puglasey and Chris Cobb in The Ottawa Citizen, Brian Maloney in HuffPost Canada, Stephen Thorne in Legion Magazine, and so many others. And special thanks to Stephen Thorne for helping us get in touch with some of our guests. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Arshi, at Canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Noor Azria, our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making Commons for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a and supporter, so from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.
5: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices.